Psalm 119, we are in the 8th stanza, which begins at verse 57 this morning. And we'll read down through verse 64. But before we get there, if you were to go outside on a night that is clear, and you were to look up at the night sky on a clear night, not one that's filled with clouds or fog or what have you, you would uh, be just overwhelmed by an indiscernible amount of stars. How many of you have been able to do that at some point in your life? Uh, I was able to do that one time when I was in Kansas. Of course, Kansas is incredibly flat, and you don't, have, you don't know how flat it is until you go there. <laughs> uh, but my brother was getting married out there uh, many years ago, and um, I remember going outside one night. It was when me and Natalie were dating, so I was outside talking to her and on the phone. And um, I just remember looking up and... Whew, There are so many stars you can see when you're not around other city lights, when you're not around anything that's, you know, city and city limits or anything like that. You can see an incredible amount of stars. I didn't know this, but I looked it up, that the supposed space experts, so to speak, they estimate that there is one billion trillion stars in the universe. I don't know how they come up with that. That's one with 21 zeros, I counted. I counted all the zeros to make sure, because <laughs> I didn't know what that meant. One with 21 zeros, that's, they, that's their guesstimate of how many stars there are in the observable universe. I don't really know how they come up with that number. That seems like just a random number that they've made up to, hey, this is how many stars are out there. But if you think about the fact ours is one of just billions of galaxies that we've even been able to see and that there's so many pockets of deep space that aren't even yet explored, that we can't even reach, that we can't even go to, and yet <laughs> we have these experts that are uh, basing all these claims about how space works and how all this stuff functions, and they have just a small smidgen of knowledge of how things operate out in deep space. But yet, here we are, and we're staking our claim that this is how it works. <laughs> I think that always makes me, it just makes me chuckle. But I think there's uh, something similar that we can say uh, about God's word. Because uh, we cannot, and I think this is what I'm hoping and I'm striving to relay to you as I'm relaying to myself as I study this chapter, we cannot compute all of the ways that God's word speaks to us. We've, I've said it many times that God's word here in this chapter, as we we're seeing, it's unceasingly relevant. It's always able to captivate our attention. And yes, there might be one billion trillion stars, but there's more, even more than that. One billion trillion infinity ways that God's word speaks to us in our life. And that's what we're learning here in this psalm, that there's nothing that God's word doesn't have something to say to us. It can give us peace and confidence and assurance as we've seen in all seasons of life, in all walks of life. And I think, again, just like our space experts, we have Bible experts that have just a fragmentary knowledge of the knowledge of God. And yet here they say, this is how God works. (laughs) I always think that's funny. That this is how, how God has to work. We only know a small way of what God does and what God has done in our lives. I think I wrote down a couple of these verses that I was just struck by. You can write them down and remember them for later. But Isaiah 55, 8, you probably know what that verse says. It says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, says the Lord. 
His ways, his thoughts are way higher than ours, are way beyond ours. Or think about what Job says in Job 5 verse 9. I love this. He says, which doeth great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. That's our God. (laughs) He does marvelous, unsearchable, wonderful things that we cannot even number. We can't even compute the ways that God works in our lives. Or one more from Job, Job eleven seven, the confession, Canst thou by searching find out God? Canst thou find out the Almighty unto perfection? Can you plumb the depths of God's knowledge, of God's truth? No, you can't. That's that rhetorical confession here in Job. You can't even search out his ways, his unsearchable ways. And it reminds me of this quote from uh, John Piper. You might know the theologian John Piper. I love this quote that he says. He says, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. (laughs) I just think that's so fascinating to me because that's our God. He's working in ways that we can't even count, we can't even search, and we might be aware of the three minuscule ways that he's actually working in our life. But he's doing so many other things in them. And this is what's so amazing about the word. Because what we are told is that that God, that God who controls the universe that's full of 100 billion trillion stars, is the same God that's given to us in the gospel. This is what the word assures us of. This is what the word that David is reading is telling him of. This is what is giving him peace in all of these times is that this God, the God who's doing 10 billion things at once, is, and he's only aware of a small fraction of them, this is the God that's given to him in the gospel. It's what we might call the gospel of self-donation. We might call it that. It's this idea that God is self-donating himself to us. In his son, Jesus Christ. And this means that when you have faith in him, when you trust in him, as David is reminding himself to trust in this God constantly, that notwithstanding how wavering you are, how inconsistent or inconstant you are, this God, as he says right here at the beginning of our text, verse 57, this God is his portion. He says, thou art my possession, O Lord, my portion, O Lord. You are mine. I love that fact. The fact that God, he doesn't give himself over to us in installments. He doesn't say, here's a little piece of me, and once you get to level seven awesome Christian, I'll give you more of me. We get all of God the moment we believe in God. He doesn't give us uh, himself in small bits and portions and any, or anything like that. Jesus, we are given him at the moment of faith. And Jesus is, guess what, the fullness of God in bodily form. Paul, I think, says that in Colossians. And that fullness is given to us by faith. That is our portion. That is what the word says to us. And this is why David, as he's constantly reminding himself of this portion that he has in his Savior, in his Lord, in his God, this is how he can be settled. Even when around him, all the things around him are unsettled, he can be settled knowing that his possession is the God that's doing 10 billion things at once. 
The God who is incalculably sovereign over the entire universe. This God is his. This God is his God and he is that God's as well. And this was David's prayer here. Look at what he says. Let's read the stanza. This is stanza number 8 in verse 57. David says, Thou art my portion, O Lord. I have said that I would keep thy words. I entreated thy favor with my whole heart, and be merciful unto me according to thy word. I thought on my ways and turned my feet unto thy testimonies. I made haste and and delayed not to keep thy commandments. The bands of the wicked have robbed me, but I have not forgotten thy law. At midnight I will rise to give thanks unto thee because of thy righteous judgments. I am a companion of all them that fear thee, and of them that keep thy precepts. The earth, O Lord, is full of thy mercy. Teach me thy statutes. Here again you can see all the incredible terms and synonyms for the word of God that he employs. He uses words twice, commandments, testimonies, law, precepts, judgments, statutes. Again, he's... it's. Evidencing and speaking to the fact that God's word speaks to us in different ways and in different times and different seasons. And for David, this is his possession. This is, as he says, is his portion. It comes from the word of God to speak to him in every phase of life. And this morning, I just want to point out three gifts that David derives out of this word. Three gifts that are unchanging, that are as unchanging as the God of the word himself. These are three unchanging gifts that David is deriving from this word. Notice in verse 57 and verse 58, we have the lesson about how God's word offers us an everlasting portion. That's that word we've been using already before. This, that, the fact that David says, Thou art my portion, his possession Or we might say that God is his inheritance. It's his lot in life. God himself is his lot in life. And this is why he can remain steady. Because the word informs him of this truth. The word that he is reading informs him that the very God who is articulating and authoring this word is the very God that is his. By faith. This is what gives him steadiness. This is what gives him uh, peace in tumultuous times. It's cultivated by time and the word and the spirit of the word speaking to us. And notice he finds mercy and favor in that word. He says, I entreated thy favor with my whole heart. Be merciful unto me according to thy word. Again, there's our phrase. According to thy word. This is the the phrase that keeps popping up all throughout this chapter. And it reminds us of the fact that this scriptures, these scriptures before us, this is our foundation. It was David's foundation here. It's his possession, his sole lot in life, we might say. And here he is reminded that the only occupation of this word, the only job that this word is to do is to exalt the very person in whom we have mercy and favor, is to exalt and show us the very person in whom we can say, that is my portion, is to show us Jesus, is to show us our Messiah, our Redeemer. He's being caught up in this occupation of the Word. 
in this job, this function that the word does, he can go to it and he says, according to your word, I have mercy and favor. And I'm being reminded that you are my possession. You are all that I have. And he's being, he's praying to be okay with that. Look at verse 62. He says, at midnight, I will rise to give thee, give thanks unto thee because of thy righteous judgments. He's praying that midnight, yes, might be a time of the day. It might be referring to a literal midnight, but it's also referencing midnights of the soul, we might say. Dark seasons, tumultuous, stressful times of life that are grievous and sorrowful and uh, incredibly stressful. And here David is saying, I'm rising to give you thanks, even in these seasons. Why? Because he's remembering that Jesus is all that he has and Jesus is all that he needs. This is his confidence. This is his steadiness. This is his everlasting portion. And he's being reminded of this with just the very promise of the Messiah. With just the very promise that one day the son from his lineage would come. The son of David, the true and better son of David would arise and he would uh, rise up and crush the serpent's head and he would one day rule and reign over all of the world. And he's rising to give thanks for that promise. This is his portion. This is his possession. And it's the same for us. It's the same prayer that we ought to be praying. That this God, then the God who has promised us that he will give himself to us in his son, is the one who is urging us to see that when we have him, we have all that we need. When we have Jesus, we have everything that we need. That's, I think, really what he's getting at in verse 62 again, where he's talking about these righteous judgments These are righteous judgments because they are judging the one who is righteous, which is Jesus. He is the subject of these righteous judgments. And we have God. We have that idea of God donating himself to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And when we have him, everything else is subordinate to him. Everything else is under him. Everything else pales in comparison to having Jesus as our portion, as our possession. It reminds me, right, of what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. Let me just read it for you really quick. Philippians 3 verse 8. Remember Paul, he writes, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. Everything else that he had, it was nothing to him. It was dung. It was garbage to him. He didn't even want it because he was yearning and striving after the knowledge of Christ, the knowledge of his portion, the knowledge of the possession that he had of God himself in the person of Christ. He's saying everything else is lower. It's subordinate. It doesn't, it's not even as near as good. It doesn't have anything of the same as what Jesus has. The whole world cannot rival what I have in Jesus. It doesn't compare. It doesn't compute. It does, it's not even the same. And I think David is getting at that. That even when he loses, he is okay with that losing. Notice what he says in verse 61. 
The bands of the wicked have robbed me. They've taken away from me. These uh, folks that are around me have taken away from my reputation, from even, yes, physical things. They've slandered me. They've mocked me. They've scoffed at me. They've uh, taken away. They've robbed me. And yet, even there, but I have not forgotten thy law. That's his testimony. That's his confession. Even in that losing, I'm not being counted as lost because I have you as my everlasting portion. It reminds me of what the writer of the Hebrews says. Let me read this verse to you. Hebrews 10 verse 34 says this. For ye had compassion of me in my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. These folks that were uh, helping support the author of the Hebrew author to this letter to the Hebrews here, he's writing to the fact that you were helping me even at the spoiling even at the wasting at the losing of your own possessions knowing that in heaven you had a better an even better uh, unquenchable uh, everlasting substance everlasting portion he's saying these believers here and even yes david here are uh, uh, testifying to the fact that in jesus in faith in jesus we have an absolutely better portion a substance that cannot waver, that cannot go away. And so that even when we lose, we aren't really losing at all. It reminds me of this great quote from C.H. Spurgeon. He says, Oh, that we may never hesitate to be glad losers for Jesus. <laughs> they who lose all for Christ will find all in Christ and receive all with Christ. Again, it's pointing to the fact that Christ is our portion, he's our possession, and therefore he can't be taken away from, he can't be uh, diminished in one little smidgen. And so if he's our portion, even when we lose, we're not losing. Even when we are robbed of something, we're not really losing at all. Because if our treasure is in heaven, it's beyond the reach of anything that can do harm to it. If our portion is with God himself, the God who has gifted himself to us in Christ, if our portion is with that, it cannot diminish, it cannot wane, it cannot grow smaller, it cannot be taken away. We might be robbed of physical possessions, but we cannot be robbed of our everlasting portion in Christ. I think about that. In times even like many in our church family are enduring, times when loved ones are taken away. I think about the fact whenever I have lost a loved one, I think about the fact that how in the world does someone who does not know Jesus get through a time like this? I remember when my dad's mom was passing away. We called her Nana. And I remember I was, I think I was, I was I was 18. I was had just started college, and <laughs> I remember I, I hadn't really been faced with death that much in my life. But I remember seeing her on her deathbed. I was uncontrollably sobbing, and I had to leave the room. I couldn't see her like that. 
I think about that and think about the fact that with those who do not have this everlasting portion as theirs, how in the world are they able to get through that time? And yes, we grieve. Yes, we mourn. But like I said in my prayer, we don't mourn as those without hope. We mourn and weep knowing that we have an everlasting portion in Jesus, our Savior, who has given himself to us for free. Who has given himself to us by faith. And with God, with God as our portion, then as he says in this prayer, he has an ever-loving and ever-present friend. That's who we have. That's our everlasting possession. That regardless of the season we are enduring, we have a friend who walks hand in hand with us. Who walks right alongside us. He's with us in everything. When the devil is throwing his darts at you and getting you discouraged, when you have a season of pride that's swelling up in you, Jesus is walking there with you. When you're going through a time of just torrential stress. I used to work this job that was incredibly high stakes and incredibly just pressure filled. And I don't know about you, but when I get stressed, my eye, my left eye starts to twitch. (laughs) My eyelid starts twitching really, really badly. I had an eye twitch for probably eight months. <laughs> it was really annoying. But it was also, I couldn't imagine getting through that time without constantly being reminded that in this season I can rest in Jesus. He's with us through stress, through grief, <coughs> grief that's unbearable, through times of just doubt where you're questioning everything. Am I even the save? He's walking through us with that. He's our everlasting portion. And this is what allows us to embrace both this life and the life to come. We can walk through this life knowing that everything is working out according to His will because the sovereign God of the universe is our possession. And we can walk through life that way because we also know that the sovereign God who has ordained all of the future is ours too. This is the great testimony of King David and it's our testimony and confession as well. We have an everlasting portion. But notice quickly in verse 59 and 60. Also the fact that God's word turns us in a new direction. God's word turns us in a new direction. Look at what he says. I thought on my ways and turned my feet unto thy testimonies. I made haste and delayed not to keep thy commandments. Here he has this this growing resolve for God's word. It's a growing determination, again, as we've seen through 59 verses now up to this point. It's a growing determination to uh, be found in the word. A growing resolve for God's word and dedication to it and devotion to it. It's a, it's a devotion and resolve that's not hasty, it's not impulsive. Notice he says, I thought on my ways. I considered my ways, my life. I really considered and judged myself and reflected The time in God's word led to reflection, led to consideration, led to him taking serious thoughts on himself. A serious reading of God's word will always give you a strong direction for how God wants you to go, how God wants you to live. 
And he's confronted with himself, confronted with the fact that he knows, as we've seen, his ways are not better than God's ways. He's confronted with that fact. And he says, I have turned myself, my feet, unto your testimonies, the things that you've established, God. The things that you have ordained and ordered. I think the unfortunate thing is that oftentimes we pray for God's direction with a closed Bible. <laughs> There's, have you ever heard of the Babylon Bee? Anyone heard of that? It's a satirical news site like The Onion, if you've heard of The Onion. It, they, they post articles that are satirical. They're funny. They, have, they throw like little things that they poke fun at pop culture and current events and whatnot. So it's not real articles. There's made-up articles that sound funny. And it's from a Christian perspective, the Babylon Bee is. And I think this title was really funny. And it's actually quite relevant to what we're talking about. The headline of the article read as follows. It says, the man, there's a man literally sitting three feet away from the Bible and asking God to speak to him. <laughs> and it goes on to talk about this theoretical Christian who's praying for God to speak to him, give him direction, give him guidance. And he's literally three feet away from his Bible. <laughs> This is how we get what we are seeking when we're asking God to give us direction, give us guidance, God. Open your Bible. Open your word. This is what David was doing. I thought on my ways and turned my feet unto your testimonies, unto the things that you have said about yourself, unto the very facts of your word and your truth and your gospel. He's resolving now to turn, to turn back and bring himself back on the fact that his word is opened and his faith is being exercised on this open, possessed word. This God is his portion and he knows it because this word is promising him that. And notice that this new direction that he is turning himself to doesn't allow for any delays. Notice he says, I made haste. And delayed not these very testimonies he was aligning himself with and turning himself to were urging him to testify of them. He couldn't wait. He couldn't stop. He couldn't be delayed. This news that he was being told, this news that he was being, um, uh, being made to read and understand and study, it had to be announced. The good news has to be announced. It can't just stay inside our bones forever. We have to announce it. Such is what David is doing. He doesn't delay. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't fail in making haste to keep these commandments which tell of these testimonies of his Savior. I was thinking about this fact in my own life, this idea of making haste to do God's commandments, to follow after God's will for your life. There's this incredible pressure oftentimes with young pastors, I felt this, with waiting to serve the future imaginary idealized church, right? I want to grow the church to this certain point and, and I'm going to serve them then. I remember when I was in my own job, I was failing to minister to those people that were right around me in a job, yes, that was secular, but I was failing in what God was calling me to do. I had all these lofty aspirations, right, for being in the ministry. 
and I was failing to see the ministry that was right in front of me. I was, I was delaying. I wasn't making haste in serving these coworkers that were in front of me eight hours a day. I think about that. Don't wait to serve some future ministry. Serve right now. Don't uh, delay. Make haste right now. Serve the people that are around you right now, not an imaginary, idealized version of your church or your family. Serve them right now as they are, the people that are around you. These are those who need you. This is the new direction that God's Word calls us to. It calls us to faith and devotion, and it calls us to service. But notice quickly in verse 63, one last little thought. In this possession of the Word, God's Word invites us into an unfading family. Look at what it says. David writes, I am a companion of all them that fear thee, and of them that keep thy precepts. David here, as he's finding himself being immersed in the word, this word that tells him that he has a portion in Christ, in God himself, through Christ, he's finding himself finding companions, finding compatriots, finding fellow uh, faithful who have found likewise portions in this God. Who other people who have found everlasting portions in the same God that he is ascribing faith to. I love this fact. He's finding a family. And these companions of them that were fearing God. That were putting their faith in God. And even though as he says in verse 61 that these bands of wicked were coming and robbing him. He was finding a family in these who were fearful of this God. This is what I think also was giving him steadiness. He wasn't alone. He wasn't isolated in this sojourn through this world. He wasn't alone or lonely in these times of grief and stress and sorrow. He had company. He had companions. He had a family. This is what we are. We are a church, yes, and a church is a family. A church is a family of companions who found that their portion is the Word and the God of the Word Himself. It's a family that doesn't fade. It's because, (laughs) get used to being around us because we're going to be together forever in heaven. (laughs) It invites us into this unfading family, a companion of pilgrims. A compatriot uh, collection of sojourners and servants. All who have given their life over to the service of this king. This king who is their possession. Now think about this. Some people stay away from the church because they've been burned by it. Unfortunately so. But there's no perfect church. But there's also nothing like belonging to a church either. You're never going to belong to the perfect, again, the idealized church. It's always going to have its bruises and scars. But that doesn't mean that we 
forsake the gathering of ourselves together. Remember what Paul, or I say it's Paul, it might not be Paul, but in Hebrews chapter 10, again, let me read these verses for you. Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25. Paul, okay, I, another missed, <laughs> I don't think it's Paul, but it might be Paul. Anyways, the writer of the Hebrews says, Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. You know why we still have a Sunday night service? Because of that right there. We don't want to forsake the gathering of ourselves together. This this is what it means to be the church, a companion, a collection of servants who have found their portion in Jesus this is, as he says in 24, in verse 24 there, this is what is provoking us, what is stirring us unto love and good works. It's the assembling, the gathering of ourselves together. Yes, broken and imperfections and all. We are all broken. We are all sinners. We are all sinners who have been adopted into this heavenly family. <coughs> And we don't deserve to be here, but we rejoice that we are here because we have been made to see and believe in this everlasting portion. And God himself. That's why I'm thankful for my church. <laughs> I, I have always found such a strong affinity for the church. I grew up in it. My closest friends were always my fellow churchmates <laughs> that I would go to class with. That I'll go to Sunday school with. I've said, but I like to start out my testimony saying that Sunday school is in my DNA. <laughs> because I was born in the church that my grandfather was pastoring, and I've always been in church. So I'm thankful for this church. For a new church family. A church family that feels so real. <clears throat> Why? Because we have the same portion. We have the same God who gives himself to us. I was just saying to someone recently, I've been your pastor for only a few months, and yet I feel like I've known you for years and years. Why do you think that is? It's not because I'm charming or anything like that. It's because (laughs) we have a common faith. We have a common portion. You know, I love football. I love Florida State football, and they barely won yesterday. Don't get me started. It'll take me forever. But you know what's so funny is that me and my dad would, uh, through the years, we've been to uh, Florida State Stadium down in Tallahassee, Florida. And here we don't know the guy next to us from Adam. We don't know his name. We don't know where he's from. And yet you're sitting next to him, and you feel like you belong to one another. Why? You have the same fandom, fanaticism for the team that's on the field. You feel like you're a family. You're hugging, high-fiving, cheering like crazy when they score touchdowns, or you're saying not-so-nice things when they're not doing well. (laughs) And why is that? Why can you do that? Why does it feel so natural in a football stadium? Where this person probably has way different views and beliefs than you do. Why do you feel the same? Because you have a common portion. And the team that's out there on the field that you're cheering for, the same with the church. The same with us. 
how can we feel like a family when we have different beliefs, different backgrounds, different makeups of our family? We have the same portion, the same possession, the God who gives himself to us. This is what we have. This is what we glory in. This is what we rejoice in. Let us pray.